from the magnolia trees in the meadow. King harvest is surely come. A dry summer, then come fall. Thanks for joining us for the Organic Farm Stand, coming to you the first and third Thursday of each month. We are in the month of November, and it is uh, my pleasure to uh, be here today and to try to uh, help us to regain our equilibrium after this uh, madness of November 3rd, when the election took place. As we know, the election results are not really in. So we have to go through another period of sort of instability before we can settle into knowing what's happening. But uh, we can certainly try to uh, carry on with our lives. And to do that, we welcome Guy Beardsley from Here we are. the White Hills of Shelton. Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. Well, it's, it's always my pleasure. In what, 12 years? <laughs> Is that what's coming? Oh, my God. Every time you say that, you add another two years. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. But, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a while. I'm not counting. I'm glad you are. It would scare me too much to count uh, the numbers that high. You know, this is one of these magical days because after a very chilly and rainy period, which I'm, I'm sure you appreciated. but oh, indeed. But now we have this... A magical, almost spring day, but it has all the wonderful colors of fall and all the scents, you know, of rotting leaves and and the and the great things that uh, fall brings. Uh, with a, with a, a wonderful day when people can really enjoy the outdoors, and I think we have a few more of those coming. But tell us what it's been like up on the farm with that cold, rainy weather, and how that um, either was a plus or a deficit for you. Well, actually, we we, we pretty much enjoyed the uh, the rains, uh, and the, the snow we had well, didn't last hardly at all. But we did get about four inches of snow on the ground, mm. and uh, even uh, initially enough to make the roads a little greasy, but that melted out pretty fast. So, really, I appreciated the rain because we had uh, we got about six and a half inches of rain in October. Uh, so far, we've had uh, something less, uh, a little bit more than an inch. At least that's uh, how my my uh, my weather station records things. Now, but uh, at the point of what we got really going on now is everything is pointed toward garlic, because uh, we're having to pull the garlic cloves out of the bulbs, separating them into what the large ones are that we want to plant which the ones are going to go into the cookers for black garlic, for the ones that are somewhat smaller, and then for the some that uh, are really slivers and very small uh, cloves, and we put them in a separate uh, box or a separate uh, basket. So we have to make all those uh, arrangements, and then in the meantime we've had to get the field ready. And then the field has had uh, green manure in it, but you have to get that green manure turned under about two weeks before you're ready to plant it. Uh, yesterday I made my last harrowing of the field, so uh, the green manure is pretty much incorporated into the soils now. 
And so this afternoon, I'm going to draw, start drawing out the rows with my uh, modified chisel plow, and then uh, we'll start. And maybe today I'll even get some fertilizer mix put in the bottom of those trenches. And so we'll take one row at a time. The rows are about 200 yards long, at the, so they're, they're really long. And uh, in this particular field, we have four plots. And uh, we're working on the third plot now. This hasn't had any garlic put in it in about five years. So uh, we figure that that's the way to go. And um, then we also have uh, my son-in-law at this point who is now working on his pollinator pathways. And uh, I know you talked about it a little bit. Now, Dina Brewster, who is, of course, in charge of NOFA, uh, is actually the state representative for pollinator pathways. And so um, uh, what I would like to do, and I'm kind of changing the subject a little bit here, Richard, I'd like to bring uh, my son-in-law in on the phone like we did with Janelle on the next program. Oh, uh, that son-in-law's yeah. name is Ed. And so, um, but he could, he's the guy that's in charge of all the lavender, too. And so he's got a very good, exciting story on, and important information on people that like to grow lavender. And there's a whole lot of people that like to have that lavender as part of their garden. And it can be done, uh, but uh, there are some techniques and actually strategies which uh, Ed is very familiar with. And I could tell you what kind of lavender not to grow as well as the kind to grow and how to take care of it and uh, the way he's been very successful in it. So, uh, and now, beyond that, uh, we've... Uh, <laughs> Yesterday, I found out there was some still potatoes in the ground that I hadn't gotten out. That's terrible. But uh, the potatoes are are still in the ground. And uh, but uh, you know they'll keep in the ground as long as we don't have too many mice and rats uh, starting to find out where they are and eating them. But uh, they'll they'll hang in there, and I'll get them out as soon as we get our garlic planted, and that won't be a problem. Now, as far as planting the garlic is concerned. Um, we like to uh, <laughs> we like to point ourselves toward the Stella Natura calendar uh, root days, and they are for November 11, 12, 13, and 20 and 21. And if you miss that, uh, the Sunday, the 29th, is also a root day. But that's the end of the root days in November, and uh, we'll, we can live. We can live with that. And if we need uh, more information on that on our next uh, meeting on the uh, 19th, I'll be able to tell you what's good for December. But uh, right now, you want to get your garlic in the ground on those root days, 11, 12, 13, 20th, and 21st. Uh, simply to put the garlic in the ground, you need to have a, a good root uh, green manure crop turned under, and then you want to mix uh, with the soil a uh, phos good phosphorus and uh, potassium mix. It doesn't need to have a whole lot of nitrogen in it. And uh, you, know, you could just mix that up with uh, whatever device or, or hand tool you want to use. We use a, a, a modified chisel plow on a tractor. And uh, just once we make the trench, we go ahead and spread the, the fertilizer mix in it. And then uh, 
mix it back up again, going one way and then coming back through the other way. And that mixes it up pretty good with the soil and leaves the soil loose in the bottom of the trench so that uh, when you put the garlic in, and all you want to do is just put the garlic in. You don't need to push it in deep at all. It just just push it into the trench because the trench will be at this point uh, three to four inches below the level of the ground, and maybe not quite that much, but uh, for the most part that's the way it's going to be. And then just go ahead and uh, once uh, the garlic is in point up uh, with the seed area with the root area down, uh, then we'll just cover it up with compost. But some people just cover it up with all kinds of other materials like uh, pine needles, uh, leaves. Uh, so, but soil can be used too, uh, particularly if it's uh, if it's good soil. Now, you should, in order to do that best, it's good to have a soil test before you start all this. But uh, that's a little bit late to, to do it right now. Okay, so I've, I've covered uh, that point. Uh, any questions on that? I yeah, wonder. let me just ask you about the, the uh, you mentioned the green manure. So let's review that again. You're talking about vetch or um, winter rye or something of that sort. That you Right. We uh, use primarily the, uh, unfortunately, it's what Fedco, and, we, and we're using Fedco as, a, as, a, as an organization which is, it's is a, 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 a you know we don't mean to push our, any of our sponsors <laughs> very much, but uh, Fedco has what's known as a peas, oats, and vex mix, which is a really great soil building mix of seed, and so we spread that out with a fertilizer uh, spreader on our tractor, three point hitch, and does a great job of just uh, spreading those that out, and then we just lightly harrow it in. Uh, and so uh, it'll, it seems to do much better if you just give it a light harrowing uh, to get those seeds just barely covered. Uh, the, all of what, and then you can, of course, use winter rye, too, which you just mentioned. Winter rye is very good also, and it's a fast-growing, but it needs to be put in. Uh, probably in September if, uh, at the very latest hmm. because you like to have a little bit of root of top growth as well as a root growth. But both root and top growth are important for uh, adding a great nutrients and, uh, to the soil, both uh, macro and micronutrients, yeah. What should your uh, compost look like before you put it on, on the top of your garden? Well, we or... have two kinds of compost. One we get from McEnroe's, which is a, a a professionally made compost, uh, and the other compost is one that we make ourselves. Uh, and the, the compost that I'm going to put on there, for the most part, has been uh, from uh, has been made from uh, <coughs> compost materials that uh, our natural foods market has uh, has just discarded. Uh, for the most part, uh, the uh, materials of uh, vegetables that uh, have uh, turned and not are no longer saleable, and also uh, special uh, <coughs> types of uh, materials that uh, that they they can have. But my compost is is a compost of made from that as well as our, our plant residue, which we just throw down on there and uh, take the front loader of the tractor and mix it up. So for the most part, what we put on is it's all it's almost decomposed into just plain soil 
but uh, it's got a very great uh, nutrient mix because we do have that compost, uh, and it, most of it has been uh, decomposing for over six six months. So it's uh, it's pretty close to soil as you look at it. Uh, the, the, the material you get is compost from the uh, macintrose, which is really considered the best uh, source of uh, compost and potting soil uh, in the Northeast, based upon Cornell Laboratory analysis. So uh, that's excellent. I know there's lots of other good compost uh, that are available from almost any any seed store. So uh, <clears throat> that uh, that in the other, on the other hand is is still a little bit moist. Uh, and so when we put it on, it have to be very careful, uh, not so, so careful, but uh, it's, it's, you can get, uh, if you get your hands in it, it really gets, makes it quite a mess. But uh, we use a, a three-quart scoop to, uh, to dig into the compost bags and then spread that out in the row. I don't bother putting it right underneath each point at which we, we plant uh, a clove. We just spread it out in a row because we plant the cloves about uh, uh, <clears throat> six to eight inches apart, uh, no closer than six. And unfortunately, last year I had some some of our younger workers who planted it about four inches. And so the cloves that went in were great, but the garlic that came out was, was a little bit too small. And uh, I'm going to make sure this year we do not make that mistake again because you've got to have a good garlic uh, needs to be made from big cloves. And, of course, you want to, when you pull the cloves apart, you want to be sure those cloves don't have any uh, mold or any discoloration or any uh, rotting in there. So we pull those out and uh, discard them into the compost pile. And they'll be, go- they'll be okay in the compost pile, but because uh, they'll, de- de- they'll decompose pretty much. Well, Guy, that was a wonderful summary, and um, <laughs> t- truly, we—I wish I had some of your garlic to well, do some planting. You, know, you can come by, or uh, uh, you know, I did take um, uh, Kevin uh, Gallagher, and I took down there last—I uh, think it was last Monday. Oh yeah, I took down. Uh, he wanted 150 cloves, and so. We exchanged uh, some uh, money for 150 <laughs> cloves right there in the WPKN parking lot. I thought I thought you no longer used uh, money. I thought it was all barter system. <laughs> <laughs> well, every now and then it's it's good to have a, a few coins uh, to, <laughs> to be uh, to use. You know, uh, you're absolutely right, though. Right? I've yeah. forgotten how to use money. I, I it's just nobody wants to touch it anymore. So. But anyway, Guy, that was a wonderful report, and uh, we'll come back to you later because uh, there's always more, and uh, we always uh, have an appetite for it. But uh, let's welcome next guest, Vincent Kay, who is the proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. Vincent, over to you. Where are you, and what kind of adventures are you having romping around on this beautiful day in fields? Well, that's a good question. Uh, We are up on a hillside uh, in Hamden. Connecticut, and we're overlooking a beautiful valley. We can actually see Long Island from here today. You can see across New Haven and across the Sound, and and there's Long Island itself. And so we're up pretty high, and it's a gorgeous day um, with a number of days like this to follow, um, at least according to the weather people. 
But we are here planting garlic today, uh, Guy. <laughs> and so uh, we're maybe a little ahead of you on that calendar. But we've got 20,000 head of garlic to plant, so we're, we're, uh, we have to make use of the good weather as we, as we go. So one of the other things that we do besides beekeeping is, is also grow garlic. But I'm going to leave that to Guy because he's the official on that. And, um, well, you, Vincent, you've got a great deal of experience in that. But 20,000 cloves of garlic does take your time, though. It does, and, and our backs are, are, are sore. We're, we've got about 120 pounds of seed that we're planting today, and uh, it's all done by hand. And um, so it's, it's good, but we've, we've, got, uh, we've got it down. We've, we've got a grid, and we've, we've prepared the soil. Um, pretty much as you uh, described it, and um, and so now we we make the trenches. Unfortunately, we don't have a tractor, so we do it by hand. Whoa! And, uh, wow! Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it's like a big raised bed, um, you know, and it's it's about an acre, and um, we try to get as much as we can in. But we do put fertilizer, organic fertilizer, in, and then we do a side dressing of organic fertilizer in the spring. But anyhow, back to the back to the bees. That'll get that'll get those big big bulbs out there, Vincent. I, <laughs> I think so. We do pretty good. Um, the bees are good right now. People always say, "Well, how are the bees?" And I always turn it around and say, "Well, you tell me how are the bees." Um, you know, and and really, it's, it's a way of asking. You know, did you do anything to help the bees? Um, and this year, you know, I think the question needs to be expanded a little bit because sometimes people say. To me, do you think global warming is affecting the bees? And until now, I would have said, mm, you know, the jury's still out, this and that. And, you know, I, I really don't know. But we just keep keeping bees. And, you know, we struggle at it at times. And, and we lose some. But we, we have a good supply. And um, we restock in the spring when we have to. Um, but let me just say that I think um, global warming or certainly climate change has affected agriculture in many, many ways. And um, certainly beekeeping has taken a little bit of a hit this summer. We had over 70 days this summer of 90-degree heat. Now, how did this affect the bees? Well, in a number of ways. And I'll, and I'll start with the swarming, which happens um, usually the end of May through June. And it's a way that a hive can naturally reproduce itself. Its causes are numerous. Um, some of it's genetic, but some of it, and, and a lot of it, is, is uh, more often than not the conditions of the season. So when the inside of the hive gets crowded uh, with too much brood or too much honey, well, then things are really good and the bees swarm. So it's nature's way of reproducing the hive itself. But when it's hot also, um, the bees say it's very, very hot in here. And this includes the bees in nature, not just the hives that we keep them in, but in the hollow tree trunks in the forest, et cetera. When it's really hot, um, they say, well, maybe it's time to get the heck out of here and we produce another queen and, and let's just swarm because we just can't take it anymore. So a lot of that happened this, this summer. We had a lot of extra swarming that went on. Now, what happens after the swarm leaves the hive is that you're left with brood that hatches out and you're left with a virgin queen. Now, she has to go out and get mated and come back to the hive, and then about three to four weeks starts the whole process of egg-laying and uh, reproducing and gathering nectar so that the hive can make it through the winter. 
and so the whole process is is brilliant in a way. It, but it's it's um, what happened this summer was that uh, because of the heat, um, it affected what we call the queen set. That is the virgin queens that go out and mate and come back and start the whole process over again. We had uh, numerous losses uh, because of that, and I think um, if we've had that kind of uh, loss, other beekeepers are having the same thing, and we've verified that up and down the East Coast, and it's it's due to bad weather conditions, and in some ways it could be rain, but in this year it was hot, dry weather, and then the dearth set in, and the dearth is when all of the flowers in Connecticut stop blooming, and it's a dangerous time for honeybees because uh, there's not enough blooming out there in the fields and in the forest. Um, because there's just not the, not the type of uh, of, of uh, flowers needed to sustain large populations of bees inside the hive. At that point, there's just so many bees in the hives. They need a certain amount of food to sustain themselves, as well as you know honey that they can put away for the winter. So that didn't happen because of the heat. And then thirdly, um, when the flowers did start blooming. In the fall, and that be the um, the asters, the goldenrod, the uh, Japanese knotweed. We found that just like a maple tree in the spring, um, when someone is looking to gather sap, certain certain years have certain conditions where the sap flows a lot better, and so you get different crops that are either better or worse or less or more. And we found that the flowers this fall just did not produce the nectar that the bees needed. So uh, when I say this, I'm trying to not paint such a grim picture, but a real picture of climate change and how it affects insects. So for, in other words, the goldenrod, although it looked pretty and it bloomed, didn't produce that much nectar. It produced pollen, but not nectar. And of course we need, for any, anything alive on the planet, we need protein and we need carbohydrates. The pollen is the protein the nectar is the carbohydrates, and that's what we're missing. So we've had to go through a lot of the hives and uh, make sure that they have enough to eat, and it's been kind of expensive to supplement that with sugar syrup, which if we don't do, they will die. So it is our responsibility in, in animal husbandry to do whatever is possible to um, and ethical to keep keep our livestock alive and healthy. So we're in the process of doing that and getting ready for winter, um, but I will say that you have a nice period of good weather here, other beekeepers. So check the weight of your hive and make sure that um, if, if you have um, uh, actually go into the hive and make sure it's, it's got some uh, honey stored away, not just pollen. Um, they'll need the pollen in the spring, but they'll need the carbohydrates all winter long in the form of honey or nectar. So that's something you really have to check. Um, and uh, if you don't, then you have a few good days here, maybe a week or two weeks even, to feed the bees, and, and um, it's always best to be done in the warm weather. So I'm going on and on here, but uh, I hope that, that that helps people understand a little bit what's going on, at least in our local climates here. Mm. Um, I know that so many of the uh, farm workers that I know um, uh, struggled mightily this, this summer because of the heat, uh, whether it be through irrigation or just, just trying to harvest when things were we're drying out, and this, and I, and I think people really should thank uh, food producers and farmers because it's it's not easy out here on a good year, but this was a very stressful year, and uh, and then you have the pandemic on top of it. It's just been ugh, 
<laughs> One of those years, Richard. Yeah, we're getting used to, which is a scary thought, we're getting used yeah. to operating with this plague hanging over us. And well, we do. We have to make deliveries, so we, we make sure we wear masks everywhere um, when we're delivering. And a lot of times when we're going into stores, we have our temperatures checked at the, at the receiving dock mm-hmm. in the back. And, uh, you know, in general, we usually have a, a, a morning discussion about the pandemic before we start work. And it works as a reminder for all of us to just try to do the right thing in the course of the day and the week. But, I mean, you really have to kind of remind yourself almost daily um, that it's there and just get yeah. used to having that discussion with, with people you work with and the people you love. So That is so true because as I think we, you know, some days I'll walk out of my house without my mask. I'll be in my car and I'm almost driving out the driveway. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, kind of inured to this yeah. deadly crisis as we... Yeah have been a come inured to so many things during this past four years. Uh, Vincent, yeah, one, qu- one yeah. question about the, uh, the, you said the hive, you want to check your hive at this point to see that it has enough honey, but also enough pollen. So what do well, the bees do with the pollen? Do they consume that as part of their uh, survival diet through the winter? They No, they don't. they don't. They store the pollen now, and they won't really need it um, until um, the spring, when they start, um, lay, when the queen starts to lay eggs, and they feed that pollen as an amino acid, as a protein, to the young larva. And since the queen now is shutting down, I mean, she's got a small brood pattern, and it will get smaller and smaller right up to the solstice. And then, of course, as the days get longer after the solstice, her brood pattern or egg laying will increase. And so the pollen is necessary, but what they need the nectar or honey for is to uh, sustain themselves during the winter. They don't go to sleep in the winter. What they do is they consume that honey, and in the process, their metabolism creates heat. And so I could take the lid off a hive when it's 20 below zero in the dead of winter, and the gush of hot or warm air coming out is unbelievable. Hmm. So (laughs) in, in a way, they're cold-blooded insects, but they react socially as a warm-blooded animal. And to do that, they have to have enough carbohydrates or honey or nectar mm-hmm. to get through the winter. If they run out, they're going to starve and freeze to death, and that's the end of it. So, wow. And I always tell young beekeepers or older beekeepers, too, that dead bees do not produce honey. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things. Was you, uh, Vincent, was you ever stung by a dead bee? <laughs> no. You know that line from, uh, I think it's a, a Humphrey Bogart movie called To Have and Have Not. <laughs> this is so... I had a friend. Yeah, I had a friend who always said, you'll get stung if you look a bee in the eye. And I think that's also a great line. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, Vincent, that was a great report. And um, we actually have another guest, so I'm going to bid you adieu. And we'll look forward to the next one. It's so great that you can keep us educated and uh, inspired with thoughts of the next cycle of life, which will begin uh, in March or sometime. But uh, to have us have that continuity through the through the dark days. Thank you, Richard. Dark and, days. and look forward to, to, to speaking with you again on, in December. Absolutely correct. Thank you so much, Vincent. Okay, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Okay, you're up. welcome. I'll pick up the slack here. What I wanted to talk about was pollinator pathways. And uh, this is something that is, uh, it started in 2008 
and uh, we have a, a large contingent or a, a fairly large group of people in Norwalk who are very interested in pollinator pathways. And so, <clears throat> the uh, and I'd like to bring my son-in-law on uh, the next uh, program on the 19th to uh, is uh, very interested in it, and he also happens to be the individual who is our lavender grower and processor and distiller and has a great deal of de- of information that people who are interested in growing lavender uh, I think would be very interested in. So, um, and he's Ed, uh, my, uh, my son-in-law's name is Ed and is Janelle's husband. And of course, Janelle is a teacher, but she was born all during the summer. And uh, we were talking about her flowers and herbs and uh, other uh, very interesting things. She's she's quite uh, cerebral in her approaches to uh, things, uh, as opposed to the way I am. But nevertheless, uh, we want to talk about pollinator pathways, and uh, one of the major factors we're going to talk about is how to <clears throat> operate the uh, fields. It's hopefully that every field that has got any space at all would have a small. Uh, portion of that field devoted to to growing the f- plants that will allow the insects uh, that are in our lives to um, to populate and to to grow because insects are great pollinators not just the honeybees but uh, in my area we have great bumblebees have all kinds of little wasps all kinds of creatures that I don't even know the name of <laughs> are flitting from plant to plant and uh, carrying pollen uh, to with them. But uh, we also, of course, we have a, a great number of honeybees. Uh, uh, and the bumblebees in particular like to really live in the lavender. Uh, when the lavender is in bloom, that is when the, when the flowers are actually expanding and providing all that, uh, I think, g- very gentle uh, materials that uh, people can smell and enjoy, and uh, we'll leave let people uh, operate without a whole lot of stress. We hope. Uh, anyway, so that's what we're hopeful of doing. If uh, Vincent was still on, and the next time uh, we talk with Vincent, we may get a, a good idea of the flowers in the spring, uh, as opposed to the flowers in the fall and uh, those in the summer, which uh, would be appropriate for planting on these pollinator pathways. They don't have to be a large area, but uh, my son-in-law, I expect, is going to talk on to them uh, pretty well. And uh, Richard, if you're ready, uh, I can continue, but uh, how is Nicole doing? Yeah, we're good. Nicole is with us. Just a last thought on the pollinator pathway. We we did have somebody from Brantford. I can't remember the man's name, but... He is in charge of the Pollinator Pathway Project in Branford. And I think the idea was that, you know, homeowners, people that have a little plot of land somewhere, can plant the appropriate plants and flowers. And then, so then the bees, they can follow the pathway, and the pollinators can move down this corridor and not get stuck at any point where they have acres and acres or miles and miles of nothing to go to. So I think the the idea is for us to fill in all those gaps. And uh, we'll hear more about that with your uh, with Ed when he's here on the next show. Well, at this point, let's uh, welcome our special guest on the phone today. And her name is Nicole Gio. She is the 
senior fossil fuel process manager with an organization called Friends of the Earth. Nicole, are you with us? I am, and it's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Before we get into uh, the conversation we're going to have about public lands and the environment, just tell us a word about Friends of the Earth, which uh, is an organization I follow pretty closely. But share with our listeners uh, what its mission is and what, what some of its points of focus are. So Friends of the Earth is part of a grassroots global network with over 70 grassroots environmental organizations across the globe. We have over 2 million members and supporters in the United States, and our mission is to fight for the environment and fight for justice, to build a healthier and more just world. So how's that manifest in terms of the programs and research that you do in terms of organizing people and, and maybe promoting action and advocacy? Oh, that's a good question, because fighting for a more healthy and just world is, in fact, a very large mission. Um, <laughs> so we actually have an entire food and agriculture program, um, and an entire pollinator program, listening to the last bit of the conversation that was just happening. Um, we have an entire program dedicated to oceans and aquaculture and um, stopping polluting shipping practices and pushing for green ports. Um, we have a whole economic program that's really looking at the financing of dirty projects, both in the U.S., but also U.S. financing overseas, as well as financing in other countries. And how do we redirect investments away from dirty projects and towards uh, clean investment? How, and then the program that I'm part of, which is the Climate and Energy Program, uh, which is focused on pushing for stronger policies on climate from, from the energy perspective, because obviously agriculture is a major driver of climate change. And then also working at the project level. So, for example, we had a, um, a big campaign working on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline in North Carolina, as well as organizers on the ground, organizing volunteers um, to push for action on climate. So there's a lot of different things happening um, all over the country. That was a great summary. We appreciate that. So let's talk about, uh, focus it on the topic we were planning to talk about today, which is the issue of public lands. And we've heard so much about threats to them in the past few weeks. Just shocking what the proposals are for the Sangas Forest and other areas of Alaska, but also some of our national parks. Let's focus on that, and then also we can move on from there to talk about, you know, what kind of policies should we try to promote during the next four years, and what can we expect if President Trump continues in office or if Joe Biden is elected? Absolutely. I think, I think it goes to show how outrageous some of the proposals from the Trump administration are that they actually cut through the noise at this time. You referenced the Tongas. Um, so the Trump administration is proposing to roll back protection of the Tongas, which is the last temperate untouched rainforest in the U.S., in Alaska. And it is deeply unpopular. 96% of comments to the U.S. Forest Service uh, during the comment period on this proposal were actually opposed to it. It was so deeply unpopular that a few weeks ago, all five Alaska Native tribal nations actually withdrew their cooperating agencies in the process. 
uh, in protest. So this is a deeply unpopular action, and yet the Trump administration is moving forward with it. Uh, and it seems baffling, but this is actually par for the course of the administration, to put industry interests ahead of the American people and even ahead of common sense. Um, taxpayers for Common Sense actually commented during the review process that it would be more economically efficient to hold timber sales in parts of the forest that already have roads. So th this is not necessarily always an alliance that you expect, but even from an economic, and this is not to say that Taxpayers for Common Sense is an anti-environmental group, but even you take the environment out of it entirely, this still doesn't make sense, and yet the administration is pushing forward with it. And that's what we've been dealing with for the last four years. Tell us a little bit more about the Tongass Forest, what its its impact on our on our climate is, and what kind of development is being proposed for it, and what would that do to the forest? The Tongass is a massive climate sink, and that's also hugely important, obviously, for the climate as we're looking at accelerating global warming. It's a hugely important for the Pacific salmon and trout, for a number of other species. Um, it's both a hide. A variety of bears and trees, some of which are over a thousand years old and absorb at least eight percent of all the carbon all the carbon the lower forty eight so this is this forest in Alaska has a huge role in protecting the climate and also again being one of the last temperate rainforests that we have and so logging in there and destroying both this beautiful wilderness this wilderness that's hugely important for a number of species also is really condemning us to worsening climate change. What stage of this process are we at? Trump has, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, he, he said, oh, we're going forward with this. And what does that mean in terms of when actual work would begin there and destruction would begin there? And is there a process, like some kind of lawsuit process that has to be gone through before actual chainsaws would start to hit trees? So because this is untouched forest, actually the first step is building roads. Before you can start logging, you actually have a way, need to have a way to get equipment into the forest uh, and then to actually get trees out of the forest. But as of Thursday, it would be legal for logging companies to start building roads to cut and remove timber, uh, which is scary. So this could be happening very quickly. We will see what happens. It is very possible, you know, that could start. That being said, the Trump administration often does not do things legally. Um, this has been a big problem for the Trump administration is that they've done all these rollbacks and these horrible things that then get struck down in the court. And so we will see what happens also with the Biden administration coming in, their ability to potentially reverse some of this. We've seen companies actually not take advantage of some of the Trump rollbacks because of these legal question marks. Um, so the Tennessee Valley Authority actually continued to operate as though the Migratory Bird Treaty was in effect after the Trump administration rolled back uh, protections for bird kills because they thought that this might get struck down by the courts, and indeed it was. So you definitely have a lot of companies who try to take advantage of these rollbacks, you do also have some that would happily take advantage of these rollbacks, except for the legal work by the Trump administration has been so shoddy that they're a little bit hesitant to start making investments if those um, rollbacks could be pulled back. So right now, I mean, I think that is the big hope is that companies don't start trying to take advantage of this 
before it can be rolled back. But absolutely, it could start happening now. What could Biden do if he was elected to reverse it once the work had begun? So this is an administrative action. It's not it's not subject to congressional approval, although there are ways through the Congressional Review Act where Congress could potentially could overrule actions by the administration. The Trump administration or the Biden administration could reverse this. They would have to show justification. That's actually one of the main things that's gotten the Trump administration caught up in court is that they make these decisions without showing justification. So there is things that the Biden can do to a Biden administration do to stop logging in the Tongas, but also all of the actions by the Trump administration. I think it's really important to remember that this is just one action in an administration that has done horrible, horrible things for public land. Around 20% of admissions, climate admissions in the U.S. come from the extraction and burning of fossil fuels on public land. And the Trump administration has done everything possible to maximize the extraction and burning of fossil fuels from public land. It has pushed forward with lease sales during a pandemic, despite the fact that many of these lease sales are happening in rural areas with some of the lowest broadband access in the country, which means that people who often don't have good, reliable, or any access to the Internet actually cannot weigh in on lease sales that are happening near where they live. You have an administration that has rolled back monument protections for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, again, over the objection of local tribes. You have an administration that is pushing forward with drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which, again, is deeply unpopular in this country. And so there are so many things that this administration has done that is deeply unpopular. And a lot of it is really rooted in anti-science, cutting back environmental review, and limiting the ability of the public to actually give input into projects. And that is really scary, that is actually very similar to the Trump administration's approach to COVID. If we don't test people, then the numbers will stay low. If we don't do the studies, if we don't do the environmental review, then we just won't know the impact, so it's all good. And that's really been their attitude, again, for the last four years. We're speaking with Nicole Gio. She is the Senior Fossil Fuel Process Manager with the organization Friends of the Earth, I want to let you know, uh, Nicole, that uh, Guy Beardsley, one of our great resources for organic knowledge or farming knowledge, is also on the phone. Could you tell us, Nicole, which agencies and administrators have oversight over the things that are going on right now, and what are they doing about it? So management of the public lands in the U.S. is actually very complicated. People oftentimes assume that the Bureau of Land Management manages all of our public lands, and indeed the Bureau of Land Management manages a huge number of our public lands. And the Bureau of Land Management is under the Department of Interior. But they're actually not the only agency that manages public lands. The National Park Service obviously uh, manages the national parks. And the Forest Service is actually part of the Department of Agriculture. Um, because you know, we have treated forests as a agriculture resource um, and haven't managed it in the same way as other public lands. And so it really can get very confusing as to which agency is in charge of what. In addition, the Forest Service, really a lot of the bad stuff has come from the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Land Management in particular. The Department of Interior is currently being run by David Bernhardt. He is a former industry lobbyist. Uh, with ties to 
both the energy industry and as someone from a western state uh, that has water issues. He has ties to major water interests in California. And, you know, that is a scary thing as someone who would like to be able to continue to drink water in a climate-constrained world. At the Bureau of Land Management, there actually is, it is a Senate-confirmable position, which means that the person running the Bureau of Land Management is supposed to have Senate confirmation. Um, there is not a Senate-confirmed head of the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, this has actually been interesting and terrifying. Um, the Trump administration uh, has often left many of these Senate-confirmable positions vacant and just had acting directors filling them. And so these are people acting without Senate confirmation. And for over 400 days, the person running the Bureau of Land Management was a man named William Perry Penley. Uh, he is a openly racist individual who said that Black Lives Matter is based on a lie. He has said that um, indigenous sacred sites are based on myth. He has said many horrible things. And in addition, he actually doesn't believe that the United States should have public land. He doesn't believe that the federal government should hold any land. And so having that person running the majority of public lands in this country is a terrifying prospect. And it actually goes to show how deeply unpopular, even in red states out west, many of these policies are that William Perry Penley was essentially taken down by the state of Montana. The governor of Montana entered into a lawsuit over some of Penley's decisions, and a judge ruled that Penley had actually been serving illegally for over 400 days in violation of the Federal Vacancies Act. You know, this didn't come from uh, one of, you know, our, as a California resident, you know, one of these like, blue states. This came from Montana. Hmm. Uh, and so the actions that the Trump administration are taking is these actions are very deep, unpopular, even in red states. Nicole, this conversation, I perceive it is about halfway through where we needed to go today. And uh, that's no fault of yours. We just don't have enough time to get into the, some of these very important issues you're raising. So please accept our invitation to come back again soon to continue this on WPKN, either on this program or another one. But we want to thank you so much, Nicole Geo, Senior Fossil Fuel Process Manager with Friends of the Earth. And you can Check out Friends of the Earth at foe.org. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, I want to thank you so much. And Guy Beardsley, once again, a pleasure to be with you today. All right, sir. Well, we appreciate the opportunity. Thanks all for listening to the Organic Farm Stand. Stay tuned for some announcements and then all mixed up with Peter Beauchamp. Good show, Richard. Thank you so much. Organic love. 100% natural, baby.